This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, and my talk, I'm Margaret Schoeninger, and I am co-director of CARTA, and I will be giving a presentation on diet, nutrition, and food for thought. And why do we want to do food for thought? And the reason is because either we have easily metabolized energy available to us as food, and therefore we grew large brains, or we had our brain side actually selected upon directly and therefore had to have easily metabolized food. And I would say neither one of these two hypotheses has really been supported in any particular way. But what I want to show you is the two models that demonstrate the one. Under the more traditional model that I think we see here on the left-hand side, your left-hand side, what you see is a picture that shows pan troglodytes, a chimpanzee, with brain size as the average. And then you have what looks like a curve, a very sharp curvilinear increase up to homo habilis and then on to more modern homo. The other, Dubai Do et al. in 2018, plotted all known brain sizes that we could estimate from cranial sizes. And I think what you'll see is if you take out all of the very large tooth, what we call megadont fossils, you get more of a gradual increase in brain size. And with a more gradual increase in brain size, it's either a very minor selection on brain size increase, or it could be that brain size has allowed to be increased because of increase in terms of easily metabolized food energy. So uh, thank you to Pascal Gagneau for this lovely picture, this uh, collage of undergraduates at UCSD and whatever the foods are that they might have eaten, usually for breakfast, but for other meals as well. And I don't think you would find a lot of commonality across these, but I'm, I hope I can pull this together and show you that there are some commonalities. So let's begin with early primates. What is it about fossil primates? There have been two major hypotheses about the origins of primates, the members of our uh, group of mammals. And the first one was that early primates were, were actually predators. Uh, visually oriented predators, they were going after insects and they were going after insects in trees and they were active on small uh, branches. So they were small. We know they were small. And that would mean a diet of protein and fat because that's the ma- those are the two major components in insects. The second hypothesis uh, came out with an observation that early primates co-evolved with flowering plants probably 60, probably not 100 million years ago, but around 60 million years ago. And in that case, they were insectivores as main protein, but they were also frugivores. That means fruit eater. Same thing, they were arboreal. They were active on small branches, but here their diet is basically protein and sugar, not protein and fat. And I think I'll, uh, you'll make sense of this when I move along a little forward. When we look at some of the earliest, what we call archaic primates, these were the ancestors of real primates. This is a genus and species called Carpolesti simpsoni, 
It was published in 2017 uh, in by Mary Silox and Group. It's around 57 million years old, probably one of the earliest and most complete of the early primates that we have. We have almost all of the postcrania, a lot of the cranium. And what you'll notice, I think, are these teeth, which probably to many of you will look like rodent teeth, but they aren't. They are not ever growing and they are used probably to break open hard shelled fruits like orangutan seed. If you look back at the undergraduates at UCSD, I have white check marks here for all of the fruit that I could find. And I think, and I'm sure I have missed some, but if you'll notice, I think most everyone has some kind of fruit on their plate, the normal primate food, fruit. So let's look across all living primates, non-human primates. And what we see is one of the strongest constraints on what an animal eats, and primates in particular is a body size constraint. So if you look at very small primates, like this little um, uh, mouse lemur, what you see is that they really focus on insects. Uh, there aren't that many insects in a forest. They are small. They don't need that many insects. They're, they're arboreal, and they can move around. Insects, however, are variable in energy, but they are very high in protein. Variable to digest if they have a hard exoskeleton, but a primate with those hands can open up the exoskeleton and be able to get at the animal inside, the, the actual eating, uh, the fat and the energy, the fat and the protein. If you look at very large primates like gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, orangutans, humans, what we see across all of those except humans is that their main energy source is leaves. Now leaves are low in energy, all that energy is tied up in, within cell walls. It's very difficult to digest. We do not have the enzymes to break open those cell walls. But they are high in protein. And as I said, they're hard to digest. So you have very large animals who have very large gut GI tracts and take a long time to digest. I'm showing you up here that not all fruits are the types of our domesticated fruits. These can have hard exoskeleton, hard outsides or they can be hard all the way through with very little sweet in them. But the main part of this would be energy is low in the leaf. The fruit then could do it if they're not eating just, just leaves. Most primates do not rely on just leaves or just insects. What they are doing is they're relying either on fruit and insects or fruit and leaves. And so I've just shown the sort of generalized primate, the macaque, Macaca mulata, and what we have here is if they are eating leaves, those are going to be hard to digest. If they're eating insects, they are variable to digest, but they're using fruit, again, as the energy. In other words, a sugar as the energy source. If we look at John Flegel's schemata that was done, uh, upgraded last in 2012, and you look across all primates, I think you'll see it again in a, maybe a more, uh, an easier way. And what we're showing here is the gorilla at over 100 kilograms. We've got the chimpanzee, the orang, the bonobo. Then we have most of the monkeys in here. We have some prosimians and some small monkeys. We have a few things that are largely insectivorous. Tarsier is the one that's the best known, and it is a, um, a prosimian. 
And then most of these are monkeys in here. There are colobene monkeys. And although they do not, most of them do not just eat leaves, this is black and white colobus. We have a lot of them here that you see um, in the San Diego Zoo. But I would say the majority of primates are below the line here. And what they are, are the basic energy source is going to be frugivore. They're frugivorous, which means they're fruit eating. The ones that are stippled here are fruit and insects, and they tend to be the smaller ones. You have ones eating fruit and leaves, and they tend to be the larger ones. If you look at ourselves, however, we fall right into the place where either we would be fruit and leaves or we are something else. And my argument would be, and I think all of us know, that we are something else. Now, when you look across living primates, to be an ex exception to that body size constraint requires something special. When we look at the Lepilinomer, which is a small prosimian that uh, lives in Madagascar, it is way too small to be a folivore, yet it is. And what it does is it actually can either do coprophagy, which means it eliminates once, like a rabbit, it then eats that what it has eliminated, and then it goes back through the gut. So it basically doubles its, its GI tract. The other thing it does, and I'm showing the picture here, is it goes into torpor. And so what happens is that the animal just is in complete torpor. And in fact, uh, chimpanzees in some parts um, can actually go after these, in, um, in not after lepilemur, but after some of the others that are going into torpor. The other animal I'm showing here is called an eye-eye. It's also a prosimian, and it's way too large to eat insects. What it has, and I show the picture here, of its modified finger here, which allows it to go up underneath a piece of bark and lift up bark. It also has these bat-like ears that are quite mobile and allow it to hear where there are insects under the bark. But we are an exception too. We're too large to do uh, the frugivore, total fruit. We're too large for insects. So what do we do in order to be able to uh, eat what we want? So let's look again at the picture of the undergraduates. And again, I'll just focus the, the white check marks are fruit on the table. And the X's are not because there's anything wrong with them, just so that you could see it. This energy is coming from starch. So mostly breads, there's a tortilla down there, crackers up over in here. You've got all kinds, you've actually got some bacon here that's also another type of energy, not starch, but is actually going to be fat as energy. So what you see is you've got a compilation of energies here that are not the strict primate type. So let's go through the fossil record for just a little bit. Let's begin with the Artipithecus group down here. It's shown as all twigs off trees. We don't know yet exactly which of any of these individuals shown in pictures here are actual ancestors. So we'll just show them as clumps. If we look at Artipithecus 4.4 million years ago, we know, we're pretty sure anyway, that they were upright, that they were not like uh, living apes. They were not uh, knuckle walking or fist walking knuckle walking like the chimpanzee or a different type of knuckle walking for gorilla, nor were they fist walking like the living orang. They were standing upright as far as we can tell. They still had pretty small brains. 
This is at 4.4 million years ago in Ethiopia, and it was found by Tim White and his colleagues uh, in, um, in Ethiopia. When we look at the ecosystem in which they lived, I'm showing you here bone chemistry data, and I won't go into what those data mean, but instead I've shown you a picture of an elephant-like thing, the Dinotherium, that had to be living in a very wet area. The big diamond here that's enclosed is Artipithecus, and what this is showing you is ecology across the base here. And what you have is what they're eating. And if they're eating here, then they are not eating exactly like a dinotheer. But if you look over here, these are all the animals that eat grass. And what I think you can see quite clearly is that they do not eat grass. They are not in an open savanna region. This is a giraffid, or at least a giraffid relative. This is a pig relative. And this one down here is a small, uh, like a clip springer, small um, ungulate that lives in forests. So when you think about it today, it could be what, as we see today in western Tanzania, this is actually Jim Moore's field site, a colleague of ours from UCSD, uh, in western Tanzania, and that is what we would call a woodland savanna or um, a savanna woodland either way. Not as closed as a woodland where the dinotheres lived, but pretty closed, so with trees. So if we were to put this back into perspective of what kinds of things there would have been to eat, when we look at Artipithecus in a woodland savanna region, what we see is a lot of leguminous seed pods that can be eaten very high in protein. And what we're seeing is something that, at least as an unripe, but still um, pliable in terms of the teeth, I'm just talking about teeth here, could be pulverized into a food that Artipithecus could eat and would have both protein and fat, not as much of the frugivory, but probably frugivory as well because they could have eaten fruits on trees. Here's an example I want to talk about just a tad, and that has to do with, I've talked about what they could have eaten in terms of ecology. Let's look today at modern baboons. This is from the field site of my former colleague, Shirley Strum. Her field site is in Kenya. She's been there for close on to 40 years and has watched these baboons. And one thing she's noticed over the years is that this opuncha, an introduced opuncha, produces fruit year-round, and the baboons love it. Now, just like any cactus fruit, they have thorns on them, spines. And what these animals have learned is to do food handling and food processing. They can grab the fruit off, toss it in the sand, roll it around in the sand, and get all the spines off of them. And what you see here is the skin of one, and this is a baboon eating another one. So food handling and food processing is long-lived in the, in the primate lineage, and I think that's where we need to look if we're thinking of something in terms of something beyond Artipithecus. When we start to think about that, we want to look at stone tools. And the earliest stone tools we have now are roughly 3.3 million years ago, west of Lake Turkana. In this region, 
And we also have some from Ethiopia that are around two, maybe 2.9, 2.8 million years ago up in Ethiopia. So we've jumped from 4.4 million years ago in Artipithecus to 2 to 3.3 million years ago in, in terms of these, these tools. When we look at those tools a little bit more further on, I wanted to show you where we would be on the brain size chart. And where we are is in this region or in this region here. So we're looking at, if we're looking at three, we're looking here, that's roughly chimpanzee size. If we're looking here, we're moving a little bit farther forward in terms of what kinds of tools there might have been. We are starting to see somewhat, or at least seeing perhaps a slight brain size increase over and above that of a chimpanzee. I show this picture to show you what size these tools are. They would have been small tools. Some of them would have had cutting edges. Some would have not had cutting edges. They would have been more like just but small pebbles that you could pound with. The shape of the skull is definitely different than that of a chimpanzee. This is probably the earliest of the homos, or else what we would call archaic homo. One of the things I want to point out is that it's maybe hard to sort of visualize what this thing is. This is a person's thumb, and they're holding the bone that is the hock, a bone in the hock of a horse. And the white arrow here, so it's an equicalcaneus, probably zebra, but what it is here with this is a cut mark from one of those stone tools that actually has an edge on it. And it looks as if, well, it probably was, cut and either uh, butchered as a, an animal that was a carcass, it's unclear what it was, but definitely a cut mark on a tool at at least 3.3 million years ago. When we jump to, um, you can tell how few we have, if we jump to what we, in the more general sense, we would call Homo erectus in East Africa, the very early Homo erectus is usually called Homo ergaster, and that's why I've included it here. At 1.6 million years ago in Kenya, we have these stone tools that are larger. They have definitely a cutting edge on them. This is a drawing that Leslie Aallo let me use. It was from National Geographic, a paper a piece that she did, uh, putting it all together where it looks as if you could cut, butcher an animal, smash the bone, get the marrow out, which is a high fat, which is something that you could actually feed to a baby. These individuals had, this is, was found on the west shore of Lake Turkana in uh, 19... The late 1980s, 1984, 85, and then has continued work since then. Um, these, they had our body shape. They had our body size. Um, their brains were at the low end of the modern human size, modern human brain size. And what you think they are getting some kind of meat from probably from carcasses and also the fat from the um, bones that have been smashed by this hammerstone down here. I think one of the things that has really excited a lot of people since he first proposed it in 1999 is the idea that cooking made us human. I'll quote from a paper that he wrote 
uh, fire let our ancestors cook their vegetables, changing the course of human evolution. And there's absolutely no doubt it changed the course of human evolution. We are the only primate that cooks. And as with virtually all of Richard Wrangham's ideas, they have, it's been exciting. It stimulated a lot of research. But, and that's why we know something about early fire. But I think the idea is that somehow they were cooking the way that modern Hadza do. These are tuber that, and they are root tubers. When analyzed to do proximate analysis in lab at Wisconsin before I moved here, at, moved to University of California, San Diego, there's not a lot of starch in these. There's a lot of water. And when they heat them very quickly over a fire, they get a, a hard outside that then can be peeled and then they eat them without the peel and it preserves the fluid inside. So they can be up to 80% water. And I think that's one of the very important parts of these tubers is the water. They have a, a little bit of simple sugar, they have a little bit of starch, but mostly they're fiber. And what the Hadza do is they spit out quids um, these are not like what you think of as a potato. These are very, very different from a potato. But let's look at the evidence for fire, um, the very early parts of fire. Let me go back to this. How cooking made us human, and it's catching fire, and there's a picture of humans cooking. So if we look at the earliest evidence of fire right now, we would say that probably... The best evidence we have for fire is in South Africa at a cave called Wunderwerks, and it is in the northern province of South Africa. It has been found with tools. These, this bone is not from Wunderwerks. This is actually from East Africa, from Turkana. Uh, this is a photo taken by and hands held by Henry Bunn. But this Wunderwerks cave has various excavations, and the, fi the firecrack rock in here is too far back for it to be a natural fire. So there was fire, and we have tools. How the tools were used is another thing. They could have been used in the same way that the drawing that I showed before with Homer Gaster was. In other words, this bone has been smashed and re -put, it's been put back together again by Henry Bunn, and they were going after the marrow in this bone. So we do have evidence there. We don't really know what it means. The other, in terms of very good evidence we have, is if from Israel. It's from a site called GBY site in Israel. This is the site uh, today, or at least in 2014 when I took the photo. Uh, it had all kinds of Oshalian tools on it. Um, this is John Speth, who is a member of CARTA, and this is the excavator, Namagoran Inbar, who is showing it to us. This is what the Jordan River looks like now, and what the site was, was somewhere near there. We know that there's firecrack rock. She wrote a very interesting article that was in PNAS in 2002, titled Nuts, Nutcracking, and Pitted Stones at GBY. And her emphasis there was on the fact that many of these tools could have been used for breaking open nuts, for nut cracking, pounding nuts, uh, and then the stones were left, pitted stones, but the nuts, of course, weren't. 
at 700,000 to 800,000 years ago. Again, fire, but what was the fire used for? We, we don't honestly know for sure. Just want to show you a picture because all of my pictures of tools there were hard. So I'm showing you a picture from 1994, another paper that she wrote on butchered elephants and associated artifacts at the GBY site. So what we have is the tool, and this is her hand, so you can see how large this tool is. We have down here the leg of a butchered elephant, carcass, hunted, unclear. We, we just don't know. So let's start again. We have pictures of the Hadza, and we look at the Hadza. We know that there's fire in at least at 1. million years ago, 1.0. Were they cooking? Were they not? There's all sorts of exciting news awaiting us sometime in the future. And this little boy is going to perhaps see some of it. So was it for cooking? Was it for warmth? Was it for scaring predators? When I talked to some of my archaeology colleagues, my paleoarchaeology colleagues about this and what they thought, informally, I think the consensus is that there was controlled use of fire 300 to 400,000 years ago. It will be really interesting to find out if there's any more. When we look at this, this is a Hadza photo taken back in 1985 or 86. And what she's pounding are the seeds of a baobab tree in the background. And it's flour in this basket. All you need to do is mix it with water. It's 36% protein and about 30% fat. All the protein, we have virtually all of the amino acids that are necessary. Does that mean that's what was going on? This is a tuber. This is a root tuber where they've peeled it and they're about to eat it. So food for thought. We have a primate diet. We've added tools. Possibly fire was one of those tools. We know it happened sometime. We don't really know what, when. Could it have been just these tools that were developed starting somewhere around in here and went on up here, allowed the breakdown of food products to the point where we could actually digest it easily? Or did we begin to use fire? And we won't know for a while. We don't know now, but we could know in another week next year. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.